This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Margarida from Stories of Win, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Anne Duan. Dr. Anne is a principal investigator at the Sainsbury Welcome Center in London, and her lab studies how animals make flexible decisions under risk and social influence and the neural circuit mechanisms underlying these choices. Thank you so much, Anne, for letting me interview you today. It is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thank you for reaching out. It's, uh, you know, I've heard about these. These are great. So it's a real pleasure to be part of it. It's a real pleasure to have you. So I, I will start as we, we usually do and ask you, when did you first realize that you wanted to be a neuroscientist? Mm. Um, the first time I was become interested in neuroscience, I guess, is like the first year of college. I went into college thinking that I wanted to do pre-med and psychology because I've always been really interested in thinking about what other people are thinking. Um, but then I start. I took one class in neuroscience and I was hooked. <laughs> it sounds cliche, but that's exactly what happened. Um, and it just seems like this is a unique opportunity. The uh, field of neuroscience is a unique opportunity for us to really trying to under get some understanding of how the brain generates behavior. Mm -hmm. And so you were hooked from the start, from your bachelor's. Yes. And um, at what point did you realize you wanted to go to graduate school? Um, maybe that's like the conservative part of me that I've always just thought that that's the case. Um, You know, when we were growing up, right, people always ask, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? Nobody ever says, I want to be a scientist. But somehow in my mind, I think my dad kind of from an early age, quote unquote, brainwashed me that, you know, people like Marie Curie is like the best, you know, <laughs> that's kind of like, um, yeah. So I think it was always the natural next step. Um, there was a big question of, where, you know, I, I grew up in China and then I went to the U.S. for my undergrad. Um, it was at Furman, Furman University, which is a liberal arts college in South Carolina. So there's a lot of schools around there, like Wake Forest, Duke, and others, um, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, that are all really good schools and knows about Furman. And there's other schools like Princeton, which is where I ended up going, that never heard of Furman, you know, when I interviewed there. Uh, everybody else was like from MIT, Harvard, and so on. So it was a real sort of serendipity that I ended up going there. That's that's really cool. And um, at the graduate school, how did you choose the research topic that you ended up focusing on? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's a really interesting one, especially now that I have my own lab and I try to get into the mind of graduate students and how they and I'm thinking back to myself right it's a lot of random factors that eventually determine what we end up doing some people know what they want to do right away and for me that was not the case I wouldn't say I think I I mean obviously I did rotations and I chose the lab that I felt like topics were interesting and also I think ultimately it's the right level which is a very much like system neuroscience approach to understand cognition Um, I guess that's just the rotation that I had the most fun in. And um, yeah, so that's how I chose the topic and the lab, I guess. 
Mm -hmm. And can you tell us a bit more about the research you did as a PhD student? Yeah, um, so to make the story even longer than it is, when I did my rotation, I worked with this postdoc, um, Tim Hanks, and we, the lab had a really big group of people who are working on um, evidence accumulation, so the neural mechanism of perceptual decision-making. And I was part of that as well, and I had a really good time. Tim was a great mentor. Um, I you know, built drives, I trained rats, and we did recording. It was a lot of fun. And when I started my own PhD thesis, I had this conversation with my PhD advisor, Carlos Brody. Carlos was like, well, you know, this project is great, but we have this other project, which is um, to study the neural mechanism of executive control in rats. It's a hard behavior to train, um, but if you pick up this project, it will be your thing, right? The other one is like a very much a big team and, and so on. So that was kind of my choice. Um, so during my PhD, we studied um, the mechanism underlying executive control. Uh, in particular, we were inspired by a monkey um, behavior paradigm where monkeys were trained to either uh, saccade towards a target or away from a target. So here we train rats to orient towards a um, peripheral target versus away from a target. The way to the elevator pitch will be, you know, when you hear your name, but in a different context, how do you flexibly route the sensory to action? Um, and it was indeed a difficult behavior to train rats to do because rats have to hear a sound that tells them which rule it is. And based on that rule, um, transform a sensory stimulus into the corresponding appropriate action on a trial by trial basis. So a lot of my PhD was thinking about how to optimize the training for us on this difficult behavior. And once we get it, we had a unique opportunity to kind of look into the brain and see how, um, how rats do it. And, you know, the advantage obviously of doing rodent research is that we then did the first thing we did was to do perturbation, to do uh, inactivation, and then see which brain errors were required. And of course, it's never as we expected. We thought that the prefrontal cortex will be really important for um, not only doing this task, but especially in doing the anti-task. So orienting away from a visual stimulus, where you have to kind of inhibit um, a prepotent response towards the sensory stimulus because in nature we always kind of respond towards the light, for example, right? Um, to inhibit that kind of prepotent response, but also then to convert that response into the context appropriate action. So we thought PFC would be really important. PFC as for prefrontal cortex would be really important for that behavior. But to our surprise, it is important, but the other brain region that we thought will be kind of the passive listener of PFC, uh, the superior colliculus, that we thought would be important for orienting motion, um, also turns out to be important for this kind of higher cognitive function. And then that really launched the rest of my PhD thesis, I would say, to see how um, these quote-unquote more like ancient brain areas that we didn't think are that cognitive turn out to be super interesting and then uh, you know, the papers that we published from the lab, but also a bunch of other papers um, before and after us all kind of converge on the idea that the brain is more complicated than we think. It's not so much 
black and white, PFC, does all the fancy stuff and subcortical. Not at all, right? There's in the end a lot of cortical subcortical interaction. And a lot of the time, our sort of assumption about what a brain area is important for um, tend to be challenged by newer evidence. Well, that, that was a great overview. <laughs> That's a super long answer. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. It was it was really incredible. And you explained it really well. And um, so you did your bachelor's and then your PhD in the US. And then um, you went to China for your postdoc. Did Was that a plan always to go back to China to do research or did it happen by chance? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I feel like when I was, obviously I was from there, I grew up in China. Um, I don't know, I guess I didn't really think about, so doing a postdoc back in China, I guess was never the plan because what most people usually do is that they will go abroad for PhD and postdoc and some of them go back to start their own lab. So I definitely never thought I would never go back, um, but I didn't plan to go back so early. And of course, the reason why I went back is because my husband, uh, Jeff Ehrlich, he started his lab in Shanghai, uh, in NYU Shanghai. And for me, uh, you know, we decided that this is, long distance is not what we wanted to do. I feel like so many people who have two body problem kind of make these decisions together and also live with the consequences of these decisions after. Um, but I have to say, um, system neuroscience in Shanghai has just have gone through so much change in kind of the past 10 years and, and longer than that, that, um, you know, there were a lot of great labs to choose from when I was going back. That was kind of surprising in a really good way. Um, but it was definitely never the plan. But I think it turned out really well in kind of a few different ways. Um, so Jeff, my husband, he's from Canada. And I feel like if we hadn't gone to China for a few years for that part of the adventure, he probably would never really completely understand that part of me. And from my perspective, uh, you know, both academically and otherwise, it turned out to be great. Um, but I think objectively, some people might view that as like a, a risky decision uh, in the <laughs> career trajectory just because what most people do. Yeah, I think um, a lot of times family life needs to integrate to science life. And um, so I, I guess this was a, a, a challenge for you and um, a challenge for many. Yeah, I would say so. Um, and, you know, it it's almost never the case that it will work out perfectly for both people. And, you know, later we can talk about this, but I feel like right now, you know, I have my lab in, in London, in Sainsbury Welcome Center. For this step, somehow it worked out perfectly for both of us. Um, but it's almost never the case, right? And then there's different style of decision-making between couples and family together, right? And there's definitely no correct way um, whatsoever. But I think, um, you know, for us, it was important to acknowledge the fact that um, one decision, like it's okay for one person to at some point be like, you know, that was not, that, that wouldn't be what I chose for myself during that period in my life, if not for 
the betterment of the family, right? And then I think it's okay to to talk about that, and it's okay to sort of think about that as a joint decision. And some may say, you know, we make sacrifices for each other, and um, obviously, again, different family have different styles of doing that.、Um, but I think for us, it was an ongoing discussion、uh, from the beginning of decision making. Um, process and all the way till now, even you know,、um, it is a hard issue, and I don't know、uh, what the real solution is. I've heard so many stories where、um, people don't cannot take a job because of what doesn't work out for their partner, or people have to、um, happily or unhappily give up、um, what they wanted to do, whatever that is,、um, because it works better for their partner, right? So, yeah, I mean, these kind of things to be to some extent motivate my research interest of decision making, right? <laughs> it's not so black and white. It's not so easy. It's not you. I mean, the word flexible, right? It's 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 you. It's people around you. It's the internal motivation. It's the the environment at that moment, and it's your priors. It's your belief system. It's everything. So. It is a fascinating process, and there is no uniquely correct answer. So, I mean, that's the kind of fun part, I guess, for these kind of questions. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that the、uh, talking about your career also kind of led you to your <laughs> topic of research, and so、um, I think we can jump、uh, already into that. So you you did your postdoc,、um, and then the opportunity came, I guess, to start your lab. Do you want to、uh, talk a bit more how the transition from postdoc to principal investigator happened, both personally and、uh, in terms of topics of research? Yeah, I mean, if you don't mind, I maybe I can dial back a, a tiny bit, right? Because I think this、uh, is a little bit useful for maybe for some people. Which is when I think about which lab I should join for my postdoc,、uh, I feel like I was being again. I'm not saying this is like the template for success or anything like that, but I was being, in a way, strategic in the sense that, so for my PhD, I train freely moving rats on a cognitive behavior, and I have experience doing electrophysiology, doing optogenetics and pharmacology and so on. And I really wanted to learn something new. So that's in a way the reason why I pivoted a little bit, both in terms of technique and approach to join、uh, a young lab. Uh, that was、uh, very dynamic, and everyone was kind of just got here, <laughs>、uh, and that turned out to be a very productive lab as well.、Um, but also learning technique that I didn't know before, such as how to train a half-ex mouse on a cognitive behavior, which is a totally different、uh, thing from training rodents that can move around freely, and how to do things like two-photon calcium imaging. Um, more detailed circuit dissection using the genetic tools available in the mouse model, and so on. So that was kind of my thinking of what can I do that's different and potentially will make me as a scientist going forward、um, to have more multifaceted、um, tool in my in my toolbox.、Uh, and another thing that I wanted to say is that you know I feel like during my PhD the training we have are great、uh, and. In a way, like we were trained to be very rigorous, which I think is the most foundational training a scientist should have, right? But somehow, in my head, that translated into you know, 
you know, I want to identify the next important question and then think about what's the best way of sort of test that really rigorously. And, but then what I see around me during my postdoc uh, was a really interesting thing is some scientists don't think like that necessarily, but they kind of identify the most interesting question to them and don't constrain themselves uh, so much about the next step. But instead, what is the best way for us to answer this question that is the most interesting to everybody? I, I feel like I was not too scared to do that. I just didn't think that was the right thing to do. Um, but it was really inspiring to me because a lot of time it's true. It could be a fishing expedition, but other times it leads to something great and unexpected. And I think I that was a really uh, meaningful thing that I learned. And you know, going forward a little bit, when I was going on the job market, I really had like this, you know, I sat down and I think to myself, what should I study in my own lab? It was not like, this is what I did. That is what I did. Of course, naturally, the best way for me to, you know, pitch my research is to do X, Y, and Z. But instead, what are the most interesting questions that I wanted to do? And I, I don't want to be constrained now. Like I, wanted to propose something that I is like, I get up and think that's such a fun thing to do and can't wait to start doing it. Um, and I, you know, maybe we can get to that a little bit, but I was at, at that time, I don't know it was if it was like the world or, you know, through relationship between my family and me or, or what is, or like maybe things that me and my husband are discussing. Anyway, so I, I realized that, what we were talking about before, which is decision-making is, is so complex. And for a long time, we've been trying to create a very well-controlled environment so that we can study it well. Um, but is that the kind of decision that we do every day, you know? And is there a chance that we can still rigorously but study the decision that more sort of reflect the choices than really multi-faceted choices that we make every day, that there is no uniquely correct answer. I was particularly interested in thinking about change of mind, which is no longer a focus in my lab now, but at the time was something that I was thinking about because, you know, when you think about when people talk about politics, they can be faced with the same evidence but based on their own belief system, based on their own social circle, and based on their priors, their experiences, their history as an individual, they reach opposite conclusion based on the same evidence. That is amazing. I mean, sad sometimes, but uh, also fascinating. And so that kind of got, got me start thinking about what can we, what can we do with that angle? Um, and I guess the result of that is kind of thinking about decision-making as a result of all of that history and belief system and um, very like uncertainty in the environment, as well as the influence of others on us. Um, so, but then I was like, okay, that's the dream. <laughs> How can we translate that into more solid research programs, which um, then lead to these two angles that we have in the lab, one is decision under risk and one is decision in a social context. And I really have to have a disclaimer here because, because I identify my research question that way, which is what is the most interesting question I can answer now? 
uh, I'm not an expert in either of these fields, right? So when people talk to me about it, I'm like, well, really hesitant to talk about it because uh, I haven't published anything in either of these topics and I have no previous publication in any of these topics. Um, but obviously, I have training such as training uh, decision-making tasks in rodents, and all of the technology we're going to use are pretty similar. But the topic itself is definitely something that is new to me. Um, so decision under risk is, in a way, very fundamental aspect of our decision-making in the sense that the outcome of our action is almost not uh, never 100% one way or another. A lot of the time, the reward or the outcome is probabilistic, right? And how do we think about future choices based on these uncertainty or risk? So a good example would be for, you know, um, I think, where was this example from? So if you think about an animal foraging uh, in nature, let's say this animal can eat nuts, can eat insects, can eat various different things, right? So if you're in an environment where um, the resource is rich and you don't have to gamble on any choices, then maybe um, picking from you know a fallen nut, that's, that's fine. But then let's say in a really sort of cold winter night it's, and your energy consumption is really high, if you keep eating fallen nuts, there's not enough nuts for you to be surviving that night. And you actually, the only chance to survive that is to spend a lot of energy to try to capture an insect, which there's a high risk of the insect escaping and you getting nothing, which then also not lead to survival. But that was the only chance. In that case, maybe the animal will dramatically shift their uh, risk preference to go for the gamble instead of the safe choice. So that's the kind of things that and if you think about it, that is very fundamental in our everyday life as well, both in financial decisions and pretty much everything. Um, we assess whether we should be more risk averse or risk prone, depending on um, our internal and external states. So that's one of the um, first direction that we do. And we have um, managed to train half-fix mice to do a behavior like this when mice have to choose between a sure small reward versus uh, what we call a lottery, which is a potential bigger reward or potentially nothing. Um, and based on how good that potential reward is, they can then uh, change the, ch the probability of choosing the lottery. So that's one, that's one direction. The other direction is even more out there. Uh, it has gained increased popularity in the past few years, um, but it's still really, really young, which is decision-making in a multi-agent environment. Um, you know, there's a long history of understanding innate social decisions, um, such as mating, fighting, uh, maternal and paternal behavior, and so on. Um, but all the value-based decisions that we make in everyday life are also almost exclusively in a multi-agent context. Um, you know, game theory is kind of a good example of this. Or if you're thinking, you know, not, not, right now we have the World Cup going. If you're thinking about um, these kind of competitive sports, right, we really have to think about what the opponent is used to do, is doing now and will do next thinking about our own teammates, and then based on all of that, 
really quickly and dynamically make a choice for the next step. And there's a lot of sort of back and forth of multi-agent uh, decision-making going on here where you are taking into consideration of the past, current, and future behavior of others uh, into a decision-making process because the outcome of your choice depends on that, not just depends on what we do, but instead also depends on what others do. So inferring what others may do is actually a really key part of that. Um, so we're trying to design behavior paradigms where we can quantitatively study these kind of um, decision-making in mice. And that's the real challenge, which is how do we really make sure that they think about others when they're making decisions, right? So that's kind of like, well, we just started last summer, and now these are the kind of um, piloting that we're trying to do. Again, I am not an expert in any of these, <laughs> but I'm very excited about it. And I think we're actually making pretty uh, good progress in, in terms of at least setting up research programs to, to study these questions. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for, for that insight. And it sounds, I mean, even though you, you might think that you are not an expert, it's also an emerging field and it sounds truly exciting. And um, yeah, I'll be happy to hear about the, your future research in the future. Thank you so much. <laughs> and um, I, so you started as a, as a principal investigator um, a year ago, right? And uh, how has that been the experience of being a um, group leader yeah. for you? Um, I have to say it's like so much fun. <laughs> um, you know, I each stage of my career obviously has like its own unique fun, right? Like, you know, when you're a student, there's not a lot of pressure and you're learning and learning is really a lot of fun. And then you have that shared experience with your peers and then there's so much potential and hope and, and everything during your postdoc. Obviously, there's a bit more stress in terms of the next step. And I, I think, you know, right now we're very aware of sort of the pressure and the stress during the postdoc period, right? Um, but also I was learning a lot. I made really good friends. Um, and so, again, learning new things and thinking about what to do next, right? And now uh, I, I almost like wanted to say that it, it's like the most fun I've had just because maybe it's the environment that I'm in, right? So my community is just like, I, I really like my community. It's very supportive. It's very collaborative. And to kind of, have an idea, talk to someone, and then somehow spark an insight to design a new experiment. I mean, these are the most fun part of being a scientist, right? And um, I don't know, education obviously is also a very important part of our responsibility. Um, we don't have a lot of teaching responsibility, but obviously we mentor graduate students and we have other students going through the lab. And mentoring um, students, but also managing other people in the lab, including postdocs and research assistants, that's a very challenging job that um, we would never become as good at it as we should. <laughs> and at the beginning, I definitely find myself to always be wondering if I'm doing the right thing. And I think I'm, I'm quite lucky in terms of getting really good people and I have already a, a really nice team going. But that's something that I definitely think about every day, which is Am I doing my job as a manager? What is the style that I really identify with? And how can I be authentic about it so that I can be consistent, but also sort of catered towards different styles, right? We always want to do, be the, the 
a good manager for all of our lab members, but it's, it's definitely not an easy thing to do. Um, something that me, but also probably most of my colleagues should continue to um, improve ourselves on, I would say. But that's definitely, I would say, the, the number one challenge, which is how do we be the best manager for our people? Uh, but other than that, it's, yeah, it's the most fun that <laughs> I just feel really lucky. I don't know. I just feel like most jobs are not as fun as this one. But and obviously, uh, I don't want to be ungrateful. Like, I'm obviously very uh, fortunate to have what I have, which is um, a job, first of all, <laughs> uh, in a very, um, you know, well-funded environment and um, be surrounded by great colleagues and, and, and students and and so on. So that's a very privileged position to be in. And I feel like I'm really lucky every single day. So, um, yeah, I don't know. The transition is, is kind of a blur, to be honest. I'm sure I had some perspective shifting thing from being a postdoc versus um, towards being a, being a PI. But I'm still, I think of myself as a junior um, PI, which somehow in my mind is closer to postdoc and students than a very established PI. Maybe that's just me. I'm sure like the students look at me like, you're not one of us. But um, yeah. And I don't know. I haven't had any negative experience, I would say, which maybe is rare. Um, there's definitely challenges, right? And there's stress sometimes. But um, because of the very privileged position we're in, in terms of funding and resources, um, yeah. Most of the time, other than having a lot of fun doing science, I think about how I can be a better colleague and, and mentor. That's, that's great. And it's, it's great that you're able to um, have a nice experience all throughout. And um, you talked a bit about a previous challenge before, which was a two-body problem uh, for you. Do you have any other challenges that you think are, that you'd like to share? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, definitely the three body problem is like the uh, even a bigger problem, right? And I think so. I mean, a lot of people, everyone's experience is different, and a lot of people um, have slightly different experience from me. I would say actually the biggest challenge that I have had in my career, um, which I did not expect until I had to face that challenge, was the decision of when to have a child and how that will affect my career and um, going through it and uh, the recovery from it, both physically and mentally. And um, yeah, so all things surrounding that decision was, uh, you know, there's no other thing that even came close, I guess, um, to the kind, the amount of stress and anxiety that I had around that decision. And I think You know, it was it was stressful and make me anxious because I think for for whatever reason, at some point it felt like me against the world. Uh, that I thought that one way is the right decision, and everybody else thought that the other way was the right decision. And in the end, I don't know if there's again a correct one. And um, so everything everything worked out, like you know, but. I think it's important to acknowledge that it's that is a very difficult decision to make. And I'm not saying that this is a unique thing for women, right? Um, but 
I do want to say that, you know, once a family has decided that they want to have children, obviously a lot of the, at least the physical consequence of that does, is attached to a woman, at least for now. Um, if we don't have that, I think it'll change everything. Um, in terms of the effects on one's career, I mean, other than the fact that, you know, I was experimentalist, I'm still experimentalist, and that will mean that I cannot do experiments for this amount of time. And um, even after having a family and doing experiments, it's very different from not having a, even like with my husband, right? We were, we've been married for, uh, I don't know how many years now, but, you know, without our our son, uh, I would be doing experiments for really late into the night sometimes, um, but but never again. Right now, that's just not something that I would do. So it's a very different, um, it's a very different life. And I think maybe even more psychologically than, than, than physical, it was difficult just because I wasn't sure how, I mean, this again sounds like, you know, <laughs> cliche but like I wasn't sure whether it's very important to me like what kind of person I was and I am and, and being a scientist was a big part of that and I wasn't sure how much of that I was going to lose um, with this decision and I yeah it's something that I we you know me and my husband we still we still talk about it um, a lot right and it, it gets easier and easier um, but that was not a a very, that was a hard time for, for me. And I thought when I was going through it, I was surprised how much of it that I didn't hear about. Like I, and this again, doesn't sound, you know, now I'm always worried that I'm not like sounding PC enough, but before I went through that, I would not have had the right amount of empathy for it. Uh, and when I was going through it, I was like, now I have empathy for people who are mothers, people who are parents, but also people who um, have physical obstacles that they simply cannot um, go through life the same way as people who do not. And I feel really bad for not having thoroughly understood that. It's not like I have the basic level of empathy, but it was not something that I would have expected if just someone just told me that. And also maybe we just don't talk about it enough. I was talking about it with everybody when I was going through it. I mean, obviously I sound super grumpy, but um, maybe it's important to talk about it. And sometimes when I talk to my friends about it afterwards, they remind me that I shouldn't like exaggerate it so that people who choose not to have children or people who haven't had kids felt like the challenges they're going through as a minority, whatever that is, um, somehow was like not important. And that's definitely not something that I would say, right, there's, there's no way that that's the, the, the position that I'm in. But for me personally, you know, it's just the single most salient challenge that I've gone through. <laughs> um, and I, I assume that that's the case for some other women as well, right? And it's, you know, how early, how late, and each have its own challenges. And it's, it's very asymmetric. So yeah, I think of course we should be aware of the general challenges people are going through, but this is without a doubt a big one. And it was the biggest one for me. Yeah. 
I, I feel like uh, your your experience uh, uh, in a previous podcast with previous people has been a shared challenge, and I think it's important to talk as you as you say, also because even resource wise, we still don't give enough resources to women, even if it's sometimes I remember um, in with other people we've talked about um, how even uh, institutes, for instance, don't have specialized rooms for mothers to. Uh, breastfeed, for instance. So it's not only a personal challenge uh, by itself, but then there is still resources lacking um, for women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, maybe the like, you know, there's something that we need to change, obviously, from an institution perspective. That's something we talk about uh, in our institute all the time is how much support can we provide more support for, um, you know, people who are breastfeeding and people who need different things for their mental health and so on. Um, but also as a general culture, because for me, the biggest difference, of course, in the end, was that my husband was doing even more than 50, way more than probably 50% of the parental responsibility afterwards, right? And that saved me, I would say. And that, that without that, I would be not, you know, thinking about how fun science was with you in this podcast, you know? And that is, you know, I think we, we see that increasingly, right, compared to compared to before, but probably still not quite enough, you know? Um, and we're both group leaders. We only have one kid, so people who have multiple kids, again, so much respect for that. Um, we don't, here we don't have help, right? So um, when, when our son is sick, then someone cannot work. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of negotiations between us. It's all in, you know, with good intention, but like, that's just the ongoing thing that we have to um, deal with. As, again, like, I'm not saying like, it's all bad, right? Of course, there's so much joy, but um, I guess I do want to say like, it is a big thing. And um, the most important thing is for people to share responsibility and maybe for the policy and institution to provide the opportunity for people to share that responsibility, right? Sometimes just have the policy is not quite enough, right? Because if you don't have that dynamics between uh, the two parents, then the policy will actually sometimes lead to even more skewed differences. Um, but once you have that sort of mindset that, um, it, it can be 50-50 or the other way around, depending on the specific situation of the family, then I think I think it'll be I think it'll be easier. I, and I think if I known that this would be the case, that my husband would be such a great father and then um he'll take so much sort of, you know, in a way like prioritize me uh for my career by sometimes sacrificing his own sleep time, let's say, um, then I maybe wouldn't have so much hesitation at the beginning, right? Because I was applying sort of world average to what will happen afterwards. I didn't expect this, you know, great uh, dad coming out of our family. I mean, of course, you know, I, I thought he would be a great dad, but I didn't think that it would be like a few standard deviation different. Um, but it would have changed how I thought about it. It would have decreased the amount of anxiety and sort of stress and uncertainty that I would have. But again, like it, we were lucky, it, it, everything worked out and we both um, got great jobs and there's, you know, 
we're tired, but there's no complaint coming from us. <laughs> that's, that's great. Thank you so much for your insight. It's, it's really good to talk about these things. And um, well, we've talked al already a bit about a lot of things, about your research, about what you do. And uh, I think we can finish with something light. Um, if you're not in the lab, where are you? <laughs> what, what, are, what do you like to do? Oof, this question is a, <laughs> it's a great question. But my answer is, is, I don't know how good that is. Um, well, I think it's a tricky question in COVID, right? Because uh, If I had not started a lab during COVID as a Chinese passport holder, which also means that wherever I go, I mean, this is kind of saying like, I, you know, I love traveling. We love traveling. And um, also we love nature, um, you know, so for knowing the lab, well, I really love food. That's maybe my, the thing that I'm most passionate about. <laughs> Maybe period. <laughs> um, yeah, and then being in, in, in London, right? I feel like um, if it's not COVID and, and, and otherwise, we will be spending more time exploring the delicious food around the world and, you know, stay in the mountain and stare at it and be amazed at nature. <laughs> That's what I would say. But unfortunately, my answer now is that Uh, I'm in the lab a lot. <laughs> and this is definitely not something that I would advertise for, for my lab or any other starting, uh, you know, group leader. Um, it just happened. And I also need to sort of, again, we're all working progresses, right? Like I, I think I do need to gradually adjust my work-life balance. That is something that I am not happy about, about myself. Um, but the stuff that we're doing, they're just like so interesting. I just, I want to know, you know, <laughs> unfortunately that is, it's not driven by like thinking about a few years later, what's going to happen or review papers, stuff like that. At this point it's purely, again, I'm not trying to say this is a good reason for people to spend all their time in the lab, but for me, right at this, at this moment, it's, it's really, uh, a lot of fun and, Somehow I couldn't um, keep away. Um, but yeah, so you know, I also have, we have a son. So other things we do are all like kids friendly things that could be fun as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's not a, that is, that is not as a cool answer as I would have. <laughs> no, it's great. You have uh, science both as your job and as your hobby, but uh, I guess you're really happy at the moment for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. that is not a that is not a good conclusion and not at all light as a, as an point. Um, well, I, I'm happy to hear that uh, you're enjoying life in London as well, and that uh, uh, your yeah. uh, experience so far has been uh, going great. And um, yeah, I think we can um, finish off here. I think we talked about a lot of things. Thank you so much for taking your time today. It was a great pleasure to have of you. Of course. Thank you, Juan. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you a lot.